Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we discuss RPG ideas, compare notes, compare rules, establish some sacred cows, uh, get rid of those cows, fight about what we think is best, and basically geek out over our favorite games. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Dillon. And I am Sam's co-host, Brandis Stoddard. And this episode, we're talking about saving throws. Woo! Saving throws. All right, so I, we need to do a little bit of history, and then what's going to happen is Brandis has something he's going to wax eloquently about, and then I have something I'm going to wax eloquently about. And uh, so we need to get get past the initial uh, growing pains of, of saving throws here real quick. Um, so I will tell you the biggest growing pain of saving throws, and that is that in the 1974 OD&D, you know, the, the, the little three, three little books edition um so okay printed in 1974 way back first initial days half of half of the rules are based on chain mail and they assumed you would be going to chain mail to to look up these things in this edition saving throws are based on class and level and uh dwarves are slightly better than everyone at those and the saving throws are for a death ray or poison exposure, for wands, including polymorph and paralyzation, for turn to stone, for dragon breath, and for staves and spells. And all it says about this, it doesn't really say a ton about everything. All it says is, is first of all, it's listed under the alternative combat system. So it tells you to go to, to chainmail, to the chainmail rules, and use those. And then it gives this alternative combat system with the uh, two-hit matrix and all that that we talked about in our last episodes. And under that portion, it says saving throw matrix, and it lists out everything, and it puts it all on a table. And then it says, failure to make the total indicated above results in the weapon having full effect. Uh, for example, if you're turned to stone, you will take full damage from a dragon's breath, etc., etc. Uh, it never tells you what kind of dice to roll. It never explicitly tells you you should roll a d20 and you need to get high, you know, uh, this amount or higher. And uh, because in Chainmail, the saves, I think, are 2d6. You roll 2d6 in Chainmail. Because you don't roll a 20-sided die in Chainmail. So it co comes here, it shows up, and you've got these numbers like 14, 15, and 16. You can't – that can't be a 2d6 roll, obviously. So it has to be a d20. But it never really spells it out anywhere. So that's, you know, that's the first thing. And this, of course, is a known problem with original D&D. &D. So we'll skip over it because that, that's not really uh, part of – you know, I mean, that's just it's, – it's sort of the quaint uh, cu cuteness of – or or – whatever, of <laughs> of that edition. Um, but I, I do want to point out, though, again, here are the saves in this order. Death Ray or Poison, Wands, which include Polymorph and Paralyzation, Stone, which means if effects that turn you to stone, Dragon Breath, and Staves and Spells. Okay. Um, if you if you say if you make your save against staves and spells, you don't actually escape all of the damage. You just uh, it's basically a save for half, so you take half damage. Same with wands. Everything else, you know, you're you either take it or you don't. Is that true even of uh, dragon's breath? You take uh, no effect on a successful save. Um, it says, uh, let's see. So 
Okay, uh, rolling uh, the total indicated above or higher means for death ray, polymorph, paralyzation, stone, turn to stone, or spells, it has no effect. Or half effect from... Oh, see, I had, I had it backwards on my notes. Or you take half effect from poison and from dragon's breath. Oh, no. Yes, half and for dragon's breath. Yeah. And then it says wands of cold, fireball, lightning, and staves... Uh, uh, oh, see, here it contradicts itself, right? <laughs> see, this is the problem with this edition. Sure, it, contra- yeah. it says wands of cold, wands of fireballs, wands of lightning, etc., and staves are treated as indicated, but saving throws being made result in one-half damage. But earlier it said, you know, against turn to stone and spell, if you save, it has no effect. So... I I think they they didn't really even really quite know how they wanted to roll it. I think I think the mean the it, it was meaningful for it to be specific to the type of wand or the type of spell or whatever, and they just shortcutted it into two or three sentences, and it made it really confusing. Well, I just want to say one thing in the partial defense of the situation: uh, tabletop game design had been invented. F- yeah, f- yeah, five minutes earlier, yeah. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah. No, no, I agree. So, I agree. So maybe some lessons had to get mm-hmm. ironed out, you know, not unfair. Right, right. Uh, yep, yeah. So let's move on then, because, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to beat up on the game. I think it, it was the early days, and, and uh, you know, those things got sort of ironed out. In in the later supplements, they, they didn't really do much better, except when they would e- explain spell effects and... You know, so that's the thing is you really have to go to the spell effect or to the creature that's causing the effect, and then it'll say in that description what it what it is. Yeah. So, well, and the thing that has always struck me about this sort of big table full of numbers is that it is a big table of numbers. <laughs> yes, and even though, like, as compared to the attack matrices, where you have a sense of the narrative of, uh, okay, a fighter is just consistently better than a, a cleric, mage, or thief at attacking with a weapon. Mm-hmm. That's 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 the clear narrative of the mm-hmm. table, right? And uh, and so on through the classes. You know, this class is better than this one. This class is better than this one. And so I get that narrative. I look at this big table of numbers mm-hmm. that are improving level over level, but because the table doesn't make it easy to uh, see them in comparison to one another, I just get totally lost mm-hmm. as to the narrative of who's supposed to be good at what or why they would be good at that thing. Yeah, it's not immediately obvious. For example, um, for Dragon for dragon Breath, for that save, the, the worst by far to begin with between levels 1 to 3 or 1 to 5 are... Uh, Magic users and uh, and clerics, which have a 16 to save, both of them. And fighters have to roll a 15, so they're only slightly better. But by the time you get down to a 13th level fighter, their save for Dragon's Breath is only a 5. Whereas the, the magic user at a 16th level still has to roll an 8. Yep. But to pull that that out of the table is is uh, quite difficult, right? And um, like I, I have uh, the first edition and second edition 
savings for matrices open in front mm-hmm. of me, and it's at least organized differently. It, it's it's organized differently, but the the logic of who's good at what and when is just mm-hmm. sort of it, it's totally different from what you just said for starters, uh, and also it's totally different from uh, the the logic that drives um, saving throws in fifth edition, which is more similar to third and fourth, right? right? So I don't want to I want to jump too far ahead, but I do want to just think about how what makes you good at breath weapons, for example, is just completely unclear to me. Right, right. right. I mean, I would have guessed that the narrative would be uh, thieves are good at avoiding mm-hmm. breath weapons because they're rolling out of the way, but that is not sustained as a, a as an idea. Right. Um, well, so let's let's hop forward then to Holmes Basic, which is basically it's a mimic of of original edition, but it does change a little bit. The the save is still based on class, but for example, the the spell the worst the worst off at the beginning. First of all, it puts the saves in a different order. But spells or magic staves, the fighter is now the worst. With a 17, though, instead of with a 16. So that different. And all all the way down the line, the best possible saves you can get for any of the saves, any of the five, any of the five groups of saves, is dwarf and halfling. They are the best at saving. And as you said, there's really no like I like the dwarves traditionally have, you know, this resistance to magic or resistance to poison, but uh why are they better at dragon's breath? Why are they better at um turning to stone? I mean, I can make an argument for those, but it's it's going to be arbitrary. Uh exposed <laughs> right. certainly. Yeah, sure. Um, so that so that doesn't change very much. Um, and also to note in Holmes Basic, I couldn't find anywhere where any ability scores adjusted how well you were able to perform your save or not. Yeah. yeah. And then we move on yeah. to. I'm just going to move very quickly through the basic editions because they don't change that much. But when we move to Moldvay Cook is 1981. Uh, you're still rolling a d20. You're still comparing it to a chart. In this case, Wisdom now will adjust uh, your magic base save. So if you have a 13 to 15, you get a plus 1 to your save roll. 16, 17, get a plus mm-hmm, 2, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Um, halflings and dwarves are still the best at everything, uh, but everyone else is, is still pretty good. They're much better than previously. Previously, we were looking at 15s and 16s and 17s to save, and now we kind of start. There's a couple that are 16 for a couple of classes, but everybody's kind of shifted down to the 13 and 14 range, and those improve quite well across levels. And then the Mincer red box is, is basically the same. So that's 1983. This is the Beckme version of the of the game. Um, Dwarves and Halflings still the best at everything in terms of, you know, because remember back then also race was class. So if you were a fighter, magic user, thief, you were a human. If you were a dwarf, you weren't a fighter, a magic user, a thief, right? You were a dwarf. If you were an elf, you were an elf. That was your class and your race. So that's why I'm mentioning it that like this, because um, it basically it's it's the same. Dwarves and halflings are the best at everything, and uh, and everyone else has. Uh, it shifts around a little bit, but it's not any humongous change uh, until we get to first edition. 
Well, hang on. So how does that intersect with the uh, the level limits on advancement? Do, do the dwarves and halflings just start strongest, but then also stop earliest? Yes, because you, the, you hit a, a level cap, theoretically speaking, yes, and, of course. And when they hit that level cap, I assume that other classes surpass their saving throw totals. That is a very good question. I feel like let's just pick one. Let's pick. Oh, let's just stick with the dragon breath. Okay. Sure. Clerics uh, between the levels of one and four have a dragon breath saving throw of sixteen. They if they can get up to levels thirty three to thirty six, and their save is down to two. But let's look at like the seventeen to twenty range. At seventeen to twenty. So let's say they're level 20. They have an 8 for the Dragon Breath. So it cut their save in half. If we look at uh, fighters, fighters have a Dragon Breath at 1st to 3rd levels of a 15. When they hit level uh, 20, it's a 6. And it's down to a 2 at level 34 to 36. If we look at a magic user, the Breath uh, breath attack is a 16 for levels 1 to 5. By the time they get to level 20, it's a 10 and it goes down to 2, level 33 to 36. And the last of the humans, the thief, is a breath attack 16, levels 1 to 4. By the time they get to level 20, it's cut in half to 8, same as the cleric. And now if we look at a dwarf, a dwarf uh, levels 1 to 3 has a dragon breath save of 13. And by the time they get to level 12, it's a 4. And then they're at their cap. An elf is a dragon breath 15 levels one to three by the time they get to level 10 it's a three and that's their cap and then a halfling is breath attack 13 from one to three and by the time they get to level eight it's a five so it does drop precipitously they they pretty much stay among the best you know they're in the top two every time right on okay i just was sort of thinking about how for all the uh, the level limit sort of shuts mm-hmm. uh, the non-human characters out of late-game play, however rare or common late-game play may have been. Right. Um, it's interesting that they stay competitive on saving throws. Well, and I, you know, I think it's the thing is that even though they don't progress in level, they still have all of their abilities that they had. And oh, by sure. the time you know, but, by the time you're a a tenth level elf or a, or a twelfth level dwarf, I mean, you're you know, I mean, yeah, you're not going to get up to level thirty, but you know, I mean, I don't know, yeah, I'd, you know, the, the the thing is that they get so many good abilities early on. The level cap, I mean, this is a whole other episode, right? The level cap was was really for you know to keep it more balanced so that you know the humans can keep progressing and. You know, I would I would definitely question whether that is the result that came out of it. Oh sure, yeah. Well, I I think the intention the intention is all is almost never what actually occurs, right? <laughs> yeah, it just it just never incentivize some of the players to say we're bored of this campaign. Let's start a new one where we can advance. <laughs> yeah, or it just incentivized DMs to house rule uh, right. level advancement in in. Demi humans, right? Right. So we we wrote this rule to incentivize you to ignore this rule. <laughs> okay. Don't tell that, me there aren't rules move. like that. Don't tell me there oh, aren't rules like that. Oh, oh no, sir. I I have read many of them. <laughs> so let's look at let's look at first edition. So first edition. Sure. 
Um, so, oh, by the way, also in the in the basic editions, it does actually give you a description of what a saving throw is, and uh, other than OE, right? Original edition didn't because it assumed you knew what it was because it's talked about in Chainmail. Although even there, it doesn't really describe it very well. But in the basic uh, editions, it actually says, you know, this is to help you try to avoid damage uh, for these magical effects or whatever. But it, it's only in uh, in first edition that it actually is described really well, or in, in a manner that it actually is a sensible manner. I don't know, sensible. If that's the right. I don't know if that's the right word. I mean, it's seven paragraphs. Yeah. So. Well, is it in the PHB or? Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the first edition DMG. Right, right. No, I got that, but in the. In the player's handbook, I was looking to see what what it actually said because I couldn't remember if it was even mentioned in there. I think it is mentioned just as a put this stat on your paper. Oh, here it is, uh, page one hundred five. Okay, so yeah, the, that page eighty thing in the DMG. That's what I'm. That's what I'm going to wax eloquently about in a minute. Uh, so here's what here's what it says in the player's handbook uh, regarding right, Danielson <laughs> wax on <laughs> regarding. Uh, Saving throws in the player's handbook. All it says, I mean, it's a paragraph, but it basically says you have a chance to avoid or partially negate some types of damage, and that's what a saving throw is. It it, it it's as very basic. It's in the combat section of the PHB. It's it's not uh it's not uh really explored at all. However, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, Guy Gygax, uh, Gygax waxes very eloquently. Here's what he says. He's he's talking about saving throws. He says. It represents the chance for the figure concerned to avoid, or at least partially avoid, the cruel results of fate. In AD&D, it is the same. He was, he was referencing Chainmail before. He says, in AD&D, it's the same. By means of skill, luck, magical protections, quirks of fate, and the aid of supernatural powers, the character making his or her saving throw takes none or only part of the indicated results. Fireball damage, poisoning, being turned to stone, or whatever. The various saving throws are shown on the appropriate tables, for characters, monsters, and items as well. When someone or something fails to roll the number shown, or better, whatever is coming comes in full. To better understand the concept of the saving throw, the following is offered. As has been pointed out, AD&D is a game wherein participants create personae and operate them in the milieu created and designed, in whole or in part, by the Dungeon Master, and shared by all, including the DM, in imagination and enthusiasm. The central theme of this game is the interaction of these personae, whether those of the players or those of the DM, with the milieu, including that part represented by the characters and creatures personified by the DM. <gasps> Gotta breathe for that long-ass sentence. This interaction results in adventures and deeds of daring. The heroic fantasy which results is a blend of the dramatic and the comic, the foolish and the brave, stirring excitement and grinding boredom. It is a game in which the continuing epic is the most meaningful portion. It becomes an entity in which at least some of the characters seem to be able to survive for an indefinite time, and characters who have shorter spans of existence are linked one to the other by blood or purpose. These personae put up with the frustrations, the setbacks, and the tragedies because they aim for and can reasonably expect to achieve adventure, challenge, wealth, glory, and more. 
if player characters are not of the same stamp as Conan, they also appreciate that they are in effect writing their own adventures and creating their own legends, not merely reliving those of someone else's creation. Yet, because the player character is all-important, he or she must always, or nearly always, have a chance, no matter how small, a chance of somehow escaping what otherwise would be inevitable destruction. Many will not be able to do so, but the escapes of those who do are what the fabric of the game is created upon. These adventures become the twice-told tales and legends of the campaign. The fame or infamy of certain characters gives luster to the campaign and enjoyment to player and DM alike, as the parts grow and are entwined to become a fantastic history of a never-was world where all of us would wish to live if we could. Someone once sharply criticized the concept of the saving throw as ridiculous. Could a man chained to a rock, they ask, save himself from the blast of a red dragon's breath? Why not, I replied. If you accept fire-breathing dragons, why doubt the chance to reduce the damage sustained from such a creature's attack? Imagine that the figure in the last moment, of course, manages to drop beneath the licking flames or finds a crevice in which to shield his or her body or succeeds in finding a way to be free of the fetters. Why not? The mechanics of combat or the details of the injury caused by some horrible weapon are not the key to heroic fantasy and adventure games. It is the character, how he or she becomes involved in the combat, how he or she somehow escapes or fails to escape, the mortal threat which is important to the enjoyment and longevity of the game. Okay, I'm done. There's three more paragraphs. But that that is the reason why Gary Gygax is both lauded and disdained for his writing style. This is the weirdest place in the absolute world <laughs> to put this essay. Right? Yes. Like it would it, it would be no weirder to literally insert, insert this as an entry in one of the tables than it is to put it here. Yes. I what Okay. Well, that's why I used. That's why I said he waxes eloquently. This has nothing to do with the mechanics. This is a rationale by the designer in the combat section of of the rulebook. <laughs> uh, one other thing, I, I just want to point out that he says, with a with what one presumes is a straight face, <laughs> that grinding boredom is an intended part of the game. When does he say that? Uh, second paragraph, um, <laughs> he's talking about the balance of forces. The foolish and the brave, stirring oh. excitement and grinding boredom. <laughs> yes, but, yes. <laughs> really? Really? You're just going to lay it on the table like that? Okay. That is... Hmm. Okay. Huh. Yeah. And, and like, it, it's... Well, I mean, what he's trying well, to yeah. do is he's trying to set it up as a game where there are ups and downs. And so Absolutely. it's it's rational Absolutely. and reasonable to have a saving throw mechanic in, in a game in which there are ups and downs. And sometimes, honestly, it's boring. That's what he's saying. Uh, and, you know, but <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's a whole other topic to talk about, you know, Gygax advice. But, you know. It's true. Like, it isn't that I dislike this essay on what the game is about. Not at all. Right. It's, it, it's got a lot to say, and it's clearly written from a place of passion. Mm -hmm. And in you know, other than maybe lionizing grinding boredom, I'm going to say that he's got mm -hmm. a lot of really good points here. Right. But 
putting it where it is is such a choice and so we that that gets us into some of the other odd choices about saving throws and this book um first of which i'm going to say is uh sort of tucking this in uh practically amidst the psionics rules um <laughs> but uh, okay fine that's that's fine that's a thing you can do um starting saving throws have gotten substantially worse from what you read before um in ODND um because for example uh, here fighters save against breath weapons on a 20 at first level zero level excuse me so so at first level they're still uh, they're still a 17 oh that, so it's 17 so that but they are the worst across the board that fight in 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 all so by the way they also change the order of the categories of saving throws now it goes now it goes paralyzation poison or death magic then it goes petrification or polymorph then it goes rod staff or wand then breath weapon then spells and the worst is fighters all the way down their high is the fighters are 16 17 18 17 19 to save and their lows are not as good as some of the others. The best is different for each category. Clerics are the best at at the first paralyzation poison. Thieves are the best at the next. Magic users are the best for the next three. But thieves overall actually have the worst progression. They do not go as low as any other class in any category. They were always the highest in every category at the end of their level progression. Right, and making them bad at breath weapon saves is one of the sh- most shocking things to me. Right. Because I think now of I- evasion, mm-hmm. obviously, and the fact that rogues have become something approaching immune mm-hmm. to uh, to that whole style of threat. Right. Um, but the thing about fighters is that the fighters improve more times than anyone else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They start in the worst place, but they have more steps of improvement happening. Um, right. The the level spread between when their when their save changes is much smaller. I think it's what right. it's three levels um, each time or two levels each time or something. And everyone else is four or five. Right. And they're also often stepping down by two points at a time mm-hmm. instead of one. So it, it's a steep improvement. And then one the one last thing I want to say that I think is just really strange is that there's a completely different saving throw table for objects. It is it is so different in that it doesn't have even the same categories of things that can happen. Right. No, it's like fire, acid, a crushing blow, a fall from a great height. Magic, magical items get a bonus to the rolls, but it doesn't really say what. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's against the type of attack or something. Uh, although it does, so the the book, the, the DMG, so first of all, the player's handbook doesn't say hardly anything, but the first edition DMG says a couple of things that are interesting. It says it gives the DM the permission to assign a modifier to any saving throw as they see fit. It tells you then to keep in mind game balance, which I don't know where the hell that, you're right? Like that, that's another, that's like the boredom thing. Let's pull that out of our butt. Because nobody cared about, I mean, Gagax didn't care about game balance any other time. But anyway, right. the, the next thing is it says that some creatures modify the save. So a creature type can modify what the save is. If you want to, as the DM, you can use the player's 
constitution modifier to help adjust a poison save, even though that's not on the table. Like, poison is on the table, but the, the fact that that con mod could change it is up to the DM. Uh, wisdom modifiers, but only for mental attacks like charm and fear and illusion. And if, you're, if your wisdom is high enough, you're actually immune to those. You don't even have to make a save. So there are a lot of little pieces of this in this edition where they really, you know, they started to um, press on the levers and see how they could change the game with different little factoids. Oh, and also, this is the first edition where a, uh, a roll of a one is always a failure. Oh, nice. Yeah. So... You know, they, they they were playing. There was a lot of levers going on here. I think I think the lesson was that uh, in the original edition, it wasn't explicit enough what that was for. It was too loosey goosey, and I think they, it's still relatively loosey goosey here. But I think they were really trying to clean it up and make it uh, a, a, a nice set of guidelines versus just well, here's a table and do what you want. All right. So I uh, I came up with more things I need to say about this. Um. So, um, just thumbing through the first edition DMG, as one does, uh, I came to, quite early in the book, a whole set of things that in later editions are going to be saving throws, but aren't in first edition. Uh, Disease and parasitic infestation. They don't involve saving throws at this point, they are percent chances. Oh, so if you get exposed, this is your percent chance of actually catching it? Exactly. It's a, it's, you have a base 2% chance, and then here's a table of about 10 different modifiers, and then your chance of parasitic infestation, base 3% chance, here's your table of modifiers, um, and then your tables of all the incredibly horrible, incredibly specific diseases that can happen to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And and nary a saving throw was seen. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, and that's something that's definitely going to change as the additions mm-hmm. go on. That was, uh, you know what, if, you, if the player uh, got close enough to touch something that had that disease, well, it's, that's, that's just what happens. It's, it's not a condition right. to save against. It's a that that percentage chance is your save, but it's not really because it's not using that language. It's not really a save. Yeah. Also, I think the DM rolls that percentage chance, right? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, because Gygax didn't want the player to have any way to know at the time right. whether or not they were infested with right, parasites. Right. Right. And I can appreciate that decision, mm-hmm. to be honest. Sure. Well, this was still back in the time when. You know, it was assumed that the DM knows all the rules and the players might not. They just show up and they get handed a piece of paper. Or maybe they made their own character, but that's kind of it. Well, uh, I, I more mean to say that I have an appreciation for the the almost gleeful sense of horrible things <laughs> that happen to your character when you have the, uh, the, the bold foolishness or the foolish boldness to go underground and try to get right. treasure. Uh, from the right mindset, that uh, that that's a great feel for a game, and I've run games that are they're in that style, where sort of the the slogan is, I, "I'm sure it's fine. I, it's probably fine. Yeah. It's probably fine." Uh, 
I was talking about it more in the uh, the idea of appreciating the fact that he didn't he just rolled and determined whether the PC caught the disease and then right. he would narrate the symptoms to the player. You feel this way or you 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 start to notice that the skin on your arm is hardening into scales and you know things like that and let the players figure out, "Oh, what did I contact and what did I, you know, what did I what kind of disease did I contract?" Because I was in that, you know, that rat hole. <laughs> um, yep. It's a style. It's definitely a style. It's a style. So, uh, do you have anything else about first edition? Uh, not at the moment. I think that has me covered. Before we move on to second edition, I want to talk about our sponsor for this episode, Noble Knight Games. Uh, Noble Knight Games is a brick-and-mortar store that also has an online presence, and they buy and sell used RPG uh, items. And if there's something that you're looking for that you can't find anywhere else, there's a good chance they have it. And they have a pretty good rating scheme. So they, you know, sometimes if you buy something online, it's like, well, it's in great condition, and then you get it, and it's kind of not in great condition. That does not happen with Noble Knight. They're really good at grading their materials. So you can trust that if you order something and it says that it's in very good condition or excellent condition, that it probably is that way. When it arrives, it will still be that way. Uh, so check them out. And when you do, tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yes, I normally devour Noble Knights. But right now, I do have one Noble Knight I love, and that's NobleKnight.com. NobleKnight.com is so awesome, and it's tasty. I get all my gaming products there, new and out of print, and I can sell my products when I'm not using them. Now, I need to go capture some villagers and sit on a pile of treasure. Thanks. And we're back. All right, Brandis. I know you want to talk about second edition. Okay, so... Um, things are pretty similar between the first edition and second edition saving throw tables. Um, I think... Uh, most of the same trends are present. Um, I'm not going through number by number to see that they're the same. Um, but it, it is certainly still true that uh, warriors start off the worst and end up uh, either best or in very close mm -hmm. competition for best. And also, second edition, they did this priority thing, right? They, they changed the order of the categories a little bit, but then... Then they also mention they, – they, they actually talk quite a bit about saving throws, and they mention that if there are – if there's more than one thing that could be affecting – you know, that the, that the PC might have to save against, that the way you figure it out which one to make them roll their save against is in this particular order. And so basically they call it the priority, right? So if, if more than one effect is going to hit that player – because of some creature's attack or something, you won't, they only roll one save. But the way you determine which one they roll is the priority order that they give you, which I, I felt like was pretty clunky, actually. Uh, I think that's pretty clunky. Um, I do like that there is some way to uh, determine what should happen with an ad hoc effect. Mm -hmm. But uh, in Printed Adventures, 
it's absolutely going. You're absolutely just going to be told what to roll, uh, regardless of what the what what the sort of suggested saving throw would be. Like a bunch of rocks falling from the ceiling. What do you roll for that? Well, <laughs> it just depends on what the module writer felt like. That's that's really the only logic to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think often as not, the answer is going to be uh, paralyzation, poison, or death magic, and I couldn't tell you why. No idea. Yeah, no clue. Um, but I'll tell so, you what: priests are the best at at that. They start with a ten. Sure, that's that's it's amazing. amazing. That's, yeah, that's great for them. It's amazing. What's the narrative to that, please? What what narrative we saw? Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, well, and so remember also now we're talking about priests, wizards, rogues, and warriors because they the right. subclasses are now under those categories. So when I say priest, that's not just one class. That's the class of priests, which include clerics yeah. and druids and whatever. And so you end up with this whole set of people that suddenly somehow are really good at withstanding death magic and poison. And paralyzation, which yeah, I don't I don't know the connection there. Yeah, there's really no there's sure. really no narrative reason. I mean, I, I don't. So I could think up uh, arbitrary narrative reasons for any of this, but none of it is written in the rules. Not at all. Uh, so that's that, that's the first thing I wanted to to say. Mm-hmm. The next is that when you get into the text discussing what each saving throw is about, which you would hope would carry some narrative um, it uh, save versus breath weapon says um, that uh, see uh, this save can also be used in situations where a combination of physical stamina and dexterity are critical factors in survival that's interesting <laughs> tell go ahead and tell me how dexterity affects this saving throw Sam well are, are those crickets I hear Sam are those crickets? Well, so here's what the here's what the modification says. It says there is a defensive adjustment if your dexterity is high enough that is applied to saves against attacks that can be dodged. Does it say that? Let me. Yeah, and it range it ranges from a, a, a negative one to your save requirement uh, if you have a fifteen dex up to negative four okay. if you have an eighteen dex. Okay. Okay. But it does not specifically say breath weapon. It just says right. attacks like that, that can be dodged. Right. Also, con your con will affect your save versus poison, but your ability score for that has to be a nineteen. <laughs> right. Good luck. And your wi- your wisdom can uh, help you uh, because it also has a defense adjustment. Uh, and this is where this is where if it's high enough, you're immune. So I misspoke. I said that was first edition. I don't think that's true. I think it's this edition. It's second edition. Right. If you find a way to crank your wisdom up to nineteen or better, you start mm-hmm. becoming immune to some really great stuff. Right. But if it's 18, you still get like a plus four or something to it. So that's that's, really that's, nice. that's pretty yeah. darn good, yeah. Because, I mean, think about it. If your wisdom's 18 and you're a priest, you're already starting with a 10. You're yeah. going to have a six saving throw against poison, paralyzation, and death magic. Yep. That's amazing because your, fi- your warrior, your fighter over there, he's got to roll a 16. All right. Sucker. <laughs> uh, the other thing about uh, this edition, when you look at both... The, the enormous amount of amount of spells that were published, mm-hmm. and then all the different you know monster stat blocks and adventures and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
saving throw penalties of minus one to minus four that are just inherent to the effect right are super common super common yep exactly well and that's what i was going to say also magic items can modify this yep. uh, creature type can modify it creature damage type can modify it i mean it's you know it's, that's why i was saying you know at the end of you know when you go through that that first edition stuff and you look you listen to gygax wax eloquently but then you realize hey they're really starting to play around with some of these you know with the wisdom modifier and with the the different you know con modifier and all that stuff and they're still leaving it up to the dm a great deal and not really codifying it so strictly, but they're really playing with it. By second edition, oh man, they were they just they figured out in between those editions, you know, I can really make this creature have something that is really tough to combat to combat, right? I can make them have this save that you have to do when they attack. And, you know, as we see, you know, most classes are not that great at saves until they get to really high level. Right. You don't become indestructible until you're otherwise also indestructible. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you lived that long, good for you, because <laughs> I, I didn't have very many characters live that long in this yeah. edition. Yeah. Um, uh, in fairness, um, one imagines that a lot of the saving throws are going to come up a lot more often at mid to high levels than they do at low levels. I mean, how much death magic actually gets thrown around before 5th level? No, but lots of, po- I mean, poison, right? I, I, in fact, I the last 2nd edition game I ran, I accidentally killed somebody in the 2nd second, second session because, granted, they started at 5th level, okay, but, but I accidentally killed him because they ran into some poisonous snakes, and I had him roll the... the uh, um, the type of poison <laughs> after he got bit. I didn't expect yep. them to get bit. It was kind of this weird situation. But after he got bit, I had him roll, roll the uh, the the strength of the poison, the poison type. And he rolled a 20, which is death. And so <laughs> so he had he, – he was like, oh, I'm rolling. Oh, and he got so happy because he rolled a 20, except he was rolling uh, for the poison. So it, it killed him in six turns. Wow. Harsh. No, no save. Yeah, I know, I know. So you know that. I mean, he failed his save, right? I mean, yeah. he did. He did try to. He did get a save, but he failed it. So I mean, you're right. But there are several saber suck situations that could come up, actually. Oh, even for sure. at even at lower levels. So some of these saves, yeah, you know, death magic. Okay, that's. I'm not going to throw death magic at first level characters, but you know. But paralyzation can definitely come up because hold person is a second level spell. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and uh, I don't know. I don't remember if ghouls still paralyze in this edition, but you know. Oh, oh do they? Oh boy! Back in basic, they would paralyze you, and then they would eat you. Uh, <laughs> as far as I know, there's not an edition of D and D where ghouls do not paralyze your ass. Yeah. Yep. Good times. Good times. So that brings us into third edition. Yes, it does. Where they really have fully realized all of the levers that can be pulled to adjust saves and and that sort of thing. Right, and I think what you see with the the sort of inversion of the system is just uh, a desire to have roughly the same level of tension in this saving throw role. Uh, at most levels of play, right? Yes. So so yeah. your bonus goes up, but so does your 
uh, your difficulty class. So mm-hmm. to take this from the top and actually explain it, um, what happens in third edition is that instead of these five categories of saving throw, uh, it, we go down to three categories of saving throw, fortitude, reflex, and will. So um, if you are listening to a uh, an actual play uh, stream or podcast and you hear the DM uh, who is now running 5th edition mysteriously call for a will save when he means a wisdom save, it's <laughs> because he ran a lot of 3rd edition or 4th mm-hmm. edition or what have you. So uh, the approach to improvement has changed a fair bit. Um, each class is essentially either good or bad at each of those categories of saving throw, uh, and then you you get a, a, a base bonus uh, that is it starts at either uh, plus zero or plus two, and over the course of play scales up to either plus six or plus twelve. Um, so when someone rolls a save, they roll a d20, and they add their base save for that particular defense, and that base save is based on class, and then they might they might have a racial bonus that they add. Uh, if it's fortitude, they add their constitution modifier. If it's a reflex, they add their dexterity modifier. And if it's will, they add their wisdom modifier. They also might have a resistance bonus if you're using a, a later build or maybe some of the prestige classes. Maybe a cloak of resistance. Right, right. There are other things like magic items that that w- can affect that. And so you're rolling a d20, but then you have all of these extra bonuses on top. Uh, in addition to your base save bonus and your your ability modifier, so you know as you said, the, the you're you're rolling to beat a DC. You're not rolling to beat the number that you have. So you don't roll to beat your base save bonus plus your con mod plus the racial bonus or whatever. You're adding all those things to your D20 roll in order to beat the DC. Now they did fold these down into three categories, but then they give examples of what you're saving against when you're using one of these. So let me just uh, give you that real quick. For example, fortitude is used to save against poison, disease, paralysis, petrification, energy drain, and disintegrate spells. Reflex is used uh, to save against falling in a pit trap, uh, catching on fire, uh, being able to dodge a lightning bolt, and uh, escaping dragon breath. And a will would be used to save against a charm person, hold person, or illusion-based spell. They kept up the natural one always failing, and they also added that a natural 20 always succeeds. Right on. But the DC otherwise is just going to exponentially rise based on you know, what the situation is. So that the higher level character, 12th level character is going to have, they're, they're not going to be facing something that's probably going to uh, have them need to pass a save with a DC of five, right? The DC is going to also increase. Yep. And so you get into um, a, a default way of calculating the DC for spells and then uh, non-spell uh, class features and such, and and monster features that need mm-hmm. a DC uh, tend to have a uh, fairly similar but not identical means of calculating the DC. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like 10 plus the level plus uh, creature's racial modifier or right. sometimes an ability, right? Uh, then there are also, weren't there, there's also like feats or special abilities you can have that allow you to try to save, like evasion, right? Let you avoid 
an area of attack spell. Yep. Metal lets you shrug off magical effects or something like that. Metal is it? Is it metal? I can't remember if I'm thinking of third edition. Right. Or not. Metal is the yeah. the fortitude version of evasion. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. And so for like saving against a magic item is ten plus one and a half times the level of the spell effect that's on the magic. I mean, like there's it's a calculation. Yep. But the ca- the calculation is done for you know before you you know. You meet that thing. You don't sit down and have a little math party. Well, I don't. I don't know. I guess in some groups you did. Um, but you know, if you're the DM, you're you're doing that calculation beforehand, so you know what that save DC is going to be. Right. Uh, and then you tell then you tell the player, okay, I need a fort save from you. Yep. And then they roll they roll that, which is very different from the previous editions where uh, either the player or the DM rolled, and the roll was a d20, and you rolled to beat whatever your own personal save value was. It had nothing to do, really, with the level of the spell or the level of the creature or the level of the effect. Except in 2nd edition, when they started fiddling with the, what the creatures could do. Right. Um, and uh, then, because of... Uh, so, because DCs work this way, uh, and because there are so many spells that uh, completely incapacitate a target uh, if it fails at save. Uh, the the save or suck situation that you uh, <laughs> mentioned just a moment ago. Uh, this creates a very involved arms race in creature design mm-hmm. uh, because suddenly uh, um, magic resistance, uh, well, sorry, spell resistance becomes a sort of parallel arms race and I feel like this might be an, an okay time to toss off a mention of how magic resistance worked in uh, sure. second edition um, I don't know off the top of my head how, how it worked before that but it was a flat percentage roll to just completely shed whatever the incoming um, magical effect was well in third edition it's a, a a d20 roll, like you'd expect for something that tattered itself as the d20 system, um, and it works more or less like an attack roll against uh, the the target creature's spell resistance number. Uh, and so you've got, like I said, a whole separate arms race of feats to improve your spell penetration and feats to improve uh, spell resistance. And this all comes down to the fact that uh, the attacker wants to disable the target in a single spell or effect, and the target would not like to be disabled in a, in a single spell or effect. Thank <laughs> you kindly. Um, and so a save, if I can interrupt you for a second, there are several things that that succeeding on a save could do. You, it could negate the effect entirely. It could provide you with only a partial effect, so that's kind of like the save for half damage thing. Um, it could allow you to disbelieve in a, an illusion of some sort, or uh, it could render uh, the, an object's effect harmless on you. But also, some things it, later on could actually have no save allowed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that arms race actually had, in some cases, it went to an exponential endpoint where there really is no save. Forget the, the the race is over, the creature won, you get no save. <laughs> if they succeed, if they succeed, then that's what it is. Wasn't maze like that? Uh, I don't know. 
but yes, uh, that that becomes a very central dynamic of the game, especially as there are more spellcasting classes in third edition than there were in any prior edition. Uh, right. And just as as you get more and more splat books with more and more really awesome feats and more and more really awesome prestige classes, uh, and it's just it becomes uh, amazing. And at the same time, there are some things that are just become unwieldy, which brings us to some changes they made in fourth edition. Unless there was anything else you had about third edition. Uh, no, I think I'm good on on third. Go ahead. So in fourth edition, they changed everything once again to be something completely different. So saving throws are now defenses. So the fortitude, the reflex, and the will are now akin to armor class. They are defenses that are rolled against by an enemy who wants to attack you. And characters, depending on their class and sometimes their race, could get a bonus to that defense, just like they get bonuses to AC for various different reasons. But the saving throw itself then, so those things are no longer actually saving throws. They are defenses. So the saving throw itself is now a d20 roll, and the DC is 10. So if you get a 10 or higher, uh, and it's unmodified mostly, there were a few feats that... At least at the beginning, there were a few feats that let you modify it. Um, you have a 55% chance, basically, because you get a 10 or higher, that's a 55% chance, and every save is like that. And the saves don't stop you from being affected by something, but they will end an effect that is already on you, or a condition. So, you know, in 4th edition, you had different conditions, like you could be taking ongoing damage, you could be uh, poisoned, and so you're, you know, you could be slowed, something like that, but you're already suffering from that effect when you make the save, because the save is made at the end of the turn. So, in previous editions, saving throws would allow you to either negate an effect, or escape half of it or something, and then it's done, and then you wouldn't have to roll that again unless you got hit with that attack again. In 4th edition, if you were hit with an effect, a lot of times that effect would hang around until you made your save. Yep. Which made for a very uh, clear way to inflict ongoing damage round over round, such as bleeds and poisons. Sure. And they also uh, introduced into the game something called a death saving throw, where uh, if you drop to zero or less, or, f- or fewer, zero or fewer, hit points, uh, every, tur- every, every turn at the end of your turn, you have to roll, a basically for your turn, really, you're rolling a death save. If you roll less than 10, you failed your death save. If you do that three times in a day without taking a long rest in between, you are dead. I appreciate your dedication to recognizing hit points as a countable object grammatically. That's very good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if you roll a 10 to 19 on that death save, there's no change, but you don't get closer to death, but you don't actually improve any. And if you roll a 20, uh, something miraculous happens, and you might get a quarter of your hit points back if you have any things called healing surges left, which is probably a topic for a different episode. But uh, you, it was a it was a resource that every character had some of, and if you had at least one left, if you rolled a 20 while you were doing a death save, it would actually pop you back up uh, into a relatively healthy position, as if you had cast a, a healing spell upon yourself. So those are saves. So saves became something to end an effect, not to help you avoid an effect, and they also uh, became something that was also related to 
death or avoiding that death. Right. And I mean, it really matters that you have um, uh, fortitude, reflex, and will as values that can be attacked instead of saving throws in 4th edition, because for the first time in the whole of D&D, a fireball can crit. Right. Yes. And that is just this enormous sort of change in thinking. Um, And so I sort of want to fold those into talking about uh, saving throws more completely, um, because there are... uh, there are powers running around in the vast continuum of fourth edition powers um, that apply you know, bonuses or penalties to um, other characters, fortitude, reflex, and will defenses, and also to any saving throws they roll. Right. Um, one of the one of the really big uh, early combos was uh, using I want to say it was an orb of imposition, which is a magic item. Uh, almost only usable by wizards um, that would let them apply a saving throw penalty to a creature and thus make some of their um, control effects stick around a lot longer. Mm -hmm. Well, this matters a mighty lot when um, elites and solos, which are uh, monster types, have a a flat bonus to saving throws so that they will shake off those effects more quickly. And because there are some very, very difficult and uh, confining uh, effects that will just completely take a monster out of a fight available to PCs throughout much of the game, um, that was part of the monster design answer to that, was to, to give them this bonus to saves. And so they also, you know, folded in the arms race on the other side, uh, and and in I keep calling it arms race in a dismissive way. That's not really fair. Uh, it, it's more sort of play and counterplay, and it's what you'd expect. Um, I, I don't actually think there's anything wrong with it, though. I do think that it's not too hard to get to a a place in table culture where it is overwhelming the rest of the game and it's just becoming too much of the dynamic sure i mean you know we we talked about this uh last episode uh in the fact that uh third edition was a system that rewarded heavily rewarded system mastery The, the better you were at knowing the system the more tweaks you could make the more combos you could figure out the better you can use the resources and skills and abilities available to your pc and the same is true of fourth edition in in several ways and one of those ways is figuring out what are the best powers and what are the best feats to use to to accommodate that arms race right to, to make that arms race so that you're the one winning it versus the creatures winning it um and you know i i agree i think the the word the, the term arms race kind of sounds derogatory but i don't particularly mean it in a derogatory manner it's just what it is that is what the game was um and that doesn't mean that every single person who ever played it played that way i know several people who did not and uh you know it was it was more about the role playing and the having fun and yeah sometimes you beat down some monsters but it wasn't all about the best combos ever 
Um, but it doesn't have to be, right? Because we're talking about design and, and how they changed things and what effects those had. And the, the effect is there is now a distinct arms race. There was in third edition as well. So they, did, they didn't lose the arms race. They, did, they didn't drop off that part of the design when they made these changes. They just changed the way the arms races run. For sure. I absolutely agree with that. Um... And honestly, uh, you know, the, the, the thing is that that having in fourth edition, having a saving throw that's only a 10 and you know it's a 10 no matter what, uh, there's a pretty good chance you're going to make your save. I mean, it's not, you know, it feels at the table like oh, it's not that hard to roll a 10, you know. No, I mean, it's a 55% pass chance. Yeah, you've, it's, it's more than 50%. Um, but, <laughs> you know, at the same time when you're talking about, well, what about, you know, the older editions when you only had to roll a 4 on a d20? Then you're, you know... Now you're, it's a much, much better, you know, now you're at an 80% chance, right? Um, and so it, it didn't scale in that way. Saving throws did not scale for you. What, what was in the arms race, what were the fortitude, reflex, and will, and the ability to, to do things to other creatures against those particular defenses, but it didn't change the save, you know? Uh, so the sa- saving throws, in other words, in fourth edition became something very different. For sure. And in addition to the, the bonuses to saving throws that I mentioned, uh, granting additional saving throws, just here have another chance to pass your save when it isn't the end of your turn, is a huge part of leader play. Right, right. Like not not having to wait till the end of your turn to make your save was a boon. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was, that was a central feature of the Warden class. So very, very kind of different feel, though, from, you know, they, it really did change the game a lot. In terms of that, in terms of saves. Yep. Do you want to talk about 5th edition? I think we're ready to talk about 5th edition. All right, let's talk about it. So, uh, saving throws in 5th in edition, um, we've done away with uh, fortitude, reflex, and will. That Those are essentially gone as concepts, sort of. Um, so, what happens is there's a separate uh, saving throw for every ability score, uh, so you have a strength saving throw, a dexterity saving throw, and so on. But dexterity, constitution, and wisdom are, especially in the uh, initial release, by far and away the most common saving throws, while uh, while strength, uh, intelligence, and charisma uh, come up a lot less. And that, that, that preeminence has gotten eroded as... Uh, things have gone on, but um, every class at base is going to be proficient. You're going to get to apply its proficiency bonus to two of those types of saves, and it's always going to be one of the uh, preeminent saves and one of the lesser saves, um, mm-hmm. if I can call it lesser. You know, the things that a failed charisma save can do to you are still terrible. So. You still could say care, se- secondary, secondary secondary saves, um, not not lesser or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you can buy additional uh, proficient saves with the uh, resilient feat, and uh, monks eventually get proficiency in all saving throws, and so on. Um, and death saving throws are still a thing. Um, the one big difference is that um, you have an actual benefit to passing three death saving throws. Once you pass three times, you're stable. Um, and, and that's a pretty big deal. So um, so, so basically, uh, 
mapping the saves back to the ability scores or the, the abilities themselves sort of it's it it feels like it harkens back to a little bit this way a lot of times when you're looking at your ability scores you're really not looking at your ability score you're looking at your modifier and so the question has come up amongst players here and there uh, for as long as I can remember pretty much um, why do we even care about the ability score why not just have a modifier there um, and in in this in this way it sort of makes in a tiny tiny teeny tiny way it makes the ability I mean fifth edition did this for, uh, in other ways as well but it makes the ability score kind of matter because it matters what your what your bonus is, what your modifier is to that ability score, because it affects your saves directly, not just in some abstract, well, dexterity kind of affects, you know, breath weapon kind of, and, and you know, constitution might affect poison, and, you know, this sort of almost ambiguous connection. There's a very distinct direct connection, even if it's only in the name, if, if you know what I mean. Sure, sure. I mean, it's still driven by your modifier rather than the score. Right. But. Sure, it is. But because we call them dexterity saves, and we call them constitution saves, and we call right, we're calling it the attribute name, so it feels like it's related to the attribute more so than when you say make a save versus spells, make a save versus breath weapon, make a save versus paralyzation. Right, and and I definitely think that uh, for ease of entry, the game benefits quite substantially from not having to explain the ability scores and then separately explain what a fortitude saving throw is. Uh, you, you really just have to explain what constitution is, and it's right there. And language matters, right? I mean, ultimately, language matters. And even if it's a tiny change, and it doesn't really change the basis of the mechanic, it does change the way that it's presented. And I run games with a lot of new players. And when you're trying to explain something to new players, that feels very disconnected. And it feels like, you know, what some people would say a mini game, right? Like figuring out what your, you know, fortitude reflex and will save is and how to determine that and all that stuff that's like a little mini game in third and, and fourth edition right whereas here it seems like it's directly connected to the attributes just because of the name and that's that's a big that's a big deal because it makes it feel more cohesive well and there are far fewer ways to modify those values and, and i think that that really cuts a lot of the arms race out of the the game's dynamic, which is very friendly to new players, uh, system mastery is greatly deprioritized. Well, and bounded your your beloved bounded accuracy. My, my beloved your, bounded your accuracy. beloved bounded accuracy also affects saves because it's tied to the proficiency, and proficiency is tied to class level, and everybody's proficiency rises at the same rate relatively speaking. So, you know, everybody who's first level is going to have a proficiency of plus two, no matter what. Everybody with, you know, seventh level is going to have a proficiency of plus three, no matter what. And that's basically true for everything, and that includes the saves. So if, you're, if your proficiency is a plus three, whatever your two saves that you're very good at, those also get your proficiency. But it's the same proficiency that everybody else is getting at that level. Um, 
and you know there's you can only have so much of a spread between your best save and your worst save that was true in third edition also and interestingly to me the the spread wound up in the same six point place right uh i think that's 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 interesting and and sort of uh retroactively worthwhile but in third edition you could so easily get into a place where uh you you're only going to save on a 20 um or you're only going to fail on a 1 that is very near to impossible though not technically quite impossible in 5th edition it's very improbable yeah you would have to uh choose some make some very specific choices uh and have some very specific circumstances arise for you to be able to to make that happen dc's can go above 20 but it's not on the monster progression chart. The, the DM would have to just decide that. And a, a player can potentially uh, push their saving throw DC above 20. Uh, notably, this is part of critical role, because they, they talk about the, the DCs that are tossing around, and um, because Matt creates situations where uh, ability scores are going above 20, then DCs are going above 20. Um that's just as part of the game he wants to run, but in um, in core fifth edition, unless you start talking about uh, tomes of various kinds or the uh, barbarian feature that grants plus four to strength and con, um, you just you you have a base of eight plus five for a stat plus six for proficiency bonus. That's nineteen. That's a that's a very firm nineteen. So. There you are. And, you know, and, and you're talking about tomes and stuff, and, you know, there aren't that many magic items that actually grant a bonus or an, or an increase to an attribute. Right, or, there are or to extremely save. few. Yeah, there's very, very few. I think there's one, there's one tome for five of the six attributes. I mean, there's one tome each, so there's like a, to- a tome of wisdom, and there's a tome for intelligence. There's, I mean, that's not its name, but it's, you know... Right. It basically what it does is allow you to use it to study, and it will then over time or through some magical means increase that attribute by one, and that's it. <laughs> um, you're you're done. Like that. so, even if you had already maxed out that attribute at a twenty, you might edge up to a twenty-one, and there might be a circumstance that occurs in a game that would let you get to a twenty-two, but. I mean, really, that's that is so very rare. You know, I just uh, fifth edition is not a game that really uh, encourages uh, dungeon masters to set up uh, situations where you know there's a tome of you know there's a tome of fighting over here, and there's a tome of you know wisdom over here, and there's a you know it's just it's not that's not generally how the game is set up. It's not really set up to encourage. Despite the default setting being really high magic, it doesn't actually encourage extreme magic items. Right. I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, I mean, attunement is such a break on uh, stacking up lots of magic items, but, I mean, you can be in a game that hands out a, a bunch of legendary items all at once, I'm playing in one right now. Uh, it's had some 
some interesting, unusual effects, um, among other things, uh, because this is still happening at fairly low level, it means that uh, it's very difficult for the uh, DM to get us interested in changing up our magic items, which means that it's more difficult to, you know, make us care about the thing we just found. And uh, I don't want to slag on it. That's not my point here. It, it's an effect that the, the DM certainly understands um, and has done with, with intent and understanding. Um, but it, it's the effect. Right. And it, but, but that's, I mean, so yeah, and my point wasn't that it's not possible to do those things or set up a campaign like that. My point was it's a, it's a very different, you know, uh, rules encourage a certain style of play or, or, or sort of point specifically new players, especially in a certain direction in terms of style of play, uh, you know, for example, having, you know, having things like the three pillars be very explicitly talked about, you know, in the rules, and it makes it so that even though a large portion of the book is is set up to, to describe combat and equipment is really combat focused and all that sort of stuff, you still, because you're describing it as a game with combat and exploration and social interaction, that makes it part of the main basis of the game, all three of those things. And it, and it's so it's possible for a rule book to be written in a way that encourages a certain set of play styles. And it doesn't mean that no one ever goes outside of those. It just means that the rules, the way that they're written, they really encourage a certain way. And one of the things that 5th edition does is it doesn't actually encourage a really uh, high, a, a campaign laden with a ton of magic items. It doesn't mean it can't happen. Sure. Um, in fact, in fact, the attunement and what you're talking about actually sounds like an interesting problem to have, right? Like a like it almost sounds like wow, something's going on, and that's it's really this weird thing. But you know, as a PC, I can only attune to three things, and I, this is very odd. Like what's happening to magic in the world? You know, <laughs> like I, I would be con- completely curious about what's going on here. Uh, and, and, you know, yeah, you, you're going to have to convince me to get rid of my currently attuned items. That, that would be, that's actually a story driver that I would turn that into a story driver. Uh, oh, for sure. I mean, what's happening is we're exploring a workshop where a bunch of wizards created powerful magic items. Well, I, I mean, see. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's right. It's, it's right up front. And, we knew that that kind of thing was going to happen, um, but not a lot of fifth-level wizards have a tome of the still tongue. I will right. tell you right now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, we're way off track now. So, uh, what what are true. your what are your final thoughts on saving throws? Um. Well, so the the growth of the system is from, uh, in this case, something where. Uh, a PC can you know, look at their sheet and their die roll and know, know whether they've passed or failed, but not have a clear narrative of what the number signified or really any attachment to what this column of numbers in their sheet meant, aside from, uh, I need to roll over this to do the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, tell me which thing, and we're good. Uh, that, that shifts over to... Um, a much clearer narrative, but they don't know based on their die result whether they've 
passed or failed unless the DM has told them the DC ahead of time. Um, and that's similar enough to the uh, dynamic around attack tables and armor class to you know, be part of the same discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly saving throws are the, the flip side of the coin to attack rolls. Um, I mean, an attack roll is the spellcaster... Uh, sorry, the, the saving throw is the spellcaster's attack roll mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. Uh, you do get uh, spell attacks or ranged touch attacks depending on edition, but um, the, the saving throw is the caster's attempt to control the situation for the most part, whether that's uh, trying to deal a bunch of damage with a fireball or uh, lock down the room with a whole person or whatever. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that, that's essentially where things land in 5th edition. Um, 5th edition also cuts way, way back on uh, save or suck as a concept for spells um, because you do get a, a fresh uh, saving throw uh, that's not a, a, a 10 or better roll but a, you know, the same saving throw you made to try to resist it in the first place at the end of each of your turns and so that is how the sort of dynamic of uh, casters versus defenders evolves yeah I think the evolution of of saving throws is sort of one of the more interesting evolutions throughout the different editions. Um, it, it's it's almost a it's almost a, a concept that is it was it was it was almost presented as well. I'll give you this bonus chance to maybe avoid death this time, uh, and it and it's almost like a uh, a favor that the DM is is giving to the to the player to allow their PC to possibly survive something horrible, and it's it's evolved into, as you said, a sort of more you can you can actually have a more narrative type of interaction with the saving throw, and it feels more now in fifth edition. It feels like it's more in the hands of the players it's it's more about uh the players it's because of that thing about it being connected to ability scores you know it it feels like it's in the player's control almost and it's less about a bonus chance that the dm is giving you or that the circumstance or that the world is giving you and it's more about utilizing the gifts and resources and abilities you have as a player character which then allows the the player to feel more ownership. And once again, it's not that you couldn't feel that way in the previous editions, it's just that the system wasn't stated and set up and described that way. It was described as something that is something is happening to the PC and the PC might have a chance to to rescue themselves from that if they roll a really good number on this d20. Whereas now it feels more like, well, here's the situation and you can react and you might have a chance to use your own internal abilities to fight off that effect or to escape that particular circumstance that's occurring. And it feels like it's more in the player's hands or in the PC's hands. And I like that change. I like that evolution. 
I think the the big change there, to my mind, is just how likely the thing is to happen or not. Um, I mean, the the likelihood of a spell taking effect is reasonably close to the likelihood of an attack landing, uh, which is why it's a, a base of eight plus everything. Um, it's it's to to generate that result. I just um, I think that in those earlier editions, it was much more. You're probably dead. You're, you're probably <laughs> dead. Right. But let's see if you get super lucky. Uh, you know, unless you happen to survive to high levels. Um, but but that's sort of um, one of the things that emerges to me when I have talked to um, you know OSR folks and uh, serious devotees of early editions. Uh, such as yourself, um, there's much more a sense of, like, if you have to make a saving throw in the first place, you may have just, you may have screwed up. Because if you even have to ask the question of whether or not the Medusa's uh, petrifying gaze affects you, uh, you probably already goofed and you should have handled that fight differently. And that's just not the sense of things in third edition and fourth edition and fifth edition. Right. Yeah, it is. That is true. It's it's part of sort of the the old school mentality of it, part of the game itself. It, you know. So let me, I, I I can sum up some com- comparison things really quickly with the way the game is played. In, in the old school, the characters were never that powerful they really until really high levels the characters were never that powerful so it was really a resource management press your luck game and if you ran into a case where you're having to roll a save yeah you probably pressed your luck a little too far and you might not survive but that was part of the game and that was part of the exploration and part of the the fun of it frankly was trying to figure out how much you can push and not ever accidentally hit the big red button and you know be gone um whereas in you know the the later editions sort starting sort of in second but really really in third and fourth and fifth the game of the game in terms of player is is about building the character right at least in the beginning um at least in in third and fourth it's about building your character so that you never have to do the save or suck thing right that's that's the game there. Your resource management and your designing the character to do the things you want and all of that stuff is happening on the front end. And then when you play, they're already powerful enough to deal with those things in a lot of cases. Right. In theory, you're thumbing the scale enough to get through. Exactly. And so, yeah, so the, the resource management part of the game and the press your luck part of the game is a different beast in the in the later you know the more modern editions than it is in the earlier editions and you know that's just that's just part of the evolution of it that's what that's part of the reason i think it's so fascinating because i do love the old school style i love that push your luck style of game and the the sort of you know puzzle solving or you know save or die kind of things going on if you know that that's the expectation and that's how you're going to play it's a great deal of fun I also enjoy modern editions, right? So I also enjoy the character building and the trying to make it and trying to figure out, you know, what can I do to make this a really cool character and I can narrate things and I can have this really interesting characterization and persona, but also I want to be mechanically effective. <laughs> you know, I want to be able to to do those things where I don't have to save or suck. And I find both of those really enjoyable. So 
you know, so that's part of the reason why I like this podcast is I like looking at all through all the additions and thinking, wow, you know, those little tiny, some little tiny changes that occurred, you know, in, in from one basic edition to the next or from OE to, to basic into first edition. And then all of a sudden, much bigger changes in second edition and then huge, Im- amazing, emerging giant changes in third and then fourth kind of completely flopped everything on its head. And then fifth is really trying to, at least I think the way that I conceive of the, of how the designers did fifth edition, how, what they did to saving throws in fifth edition, I feel like they're trying to strike the best balance between the previous older editions and how they conceived of saves versus the more modern editions. And I think they struck a pretty good balance myself. I, uh, I, I don't think I could be too much happier with this element of 5th edition. Uh, there are things in 5th edition I could be happier with, but it's fine. Let's round this up. Uh, those are your final thoughts. Those are my final thoughts. Where are you on the internet? Where are you uh, online? All right, so um, my personal blog is brandastoddard.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at brandastoddard. I also write for uh, tribality.com. And uh, by the time this reaches your ears, good listeners, our uh, Tribality's Kickstarter for Seas of Odari will have come to its glorious end. Uh, But as I say this, we are 450% funded, and we are in our last 14 hours to go to see if we can get that last stretch goal knocked out. And it's an exciting time to be alive, my friends. Exciting time. Yeah. Um, So... That is uh, that is most of what I have to say. All right, perfect. Well, uh, I'm Sam Dillon, and you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, and you can find me on all over the Tome Show, and you can find me right here on the Edition Wars podcast. And uh, pretty soon you'll be able to find me on the D&D Brief Stream podcast, which is being hosted by the uh, Don't Split the Podcast Network. So uh, you'll hear more of that in the coming uh, days or episodes. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will talk to you later. Later.